It's time to talk sci-fi and superheroes, fantasy and horror. It's time to talk movies, TV, books, and games. It's time to escape boring talk radio with the Jenny through the wormhole and into the geek universe. And now, a strange visitor from another planet with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Your host for Geek Universe, Jim Yelton. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and children of all ages, this is the Geek Universe, and I am your host, Jim Yelton. We are coming to you live on tape from Geek Headquarters, otherwise known as LV426. Gang, this week's show was another one of those kind of geek dream moments for me. Our guest is Alec Gillis, and even if the name isn't familiar, you've all seen his work as a makeup creature and visual effects artist. Starting as a teenager working for Roger Corman and continuing through his work at the Stan Winston Studio, Alec and his partner Tom Woodruff Jr. have been part of some of the biggest effects blockbusters in movie history. Aliens, Pre- Predator, Tremors, Jumanji, Starship Troopers, Spider-Man, you know, just to name a handful. Alec and Tom's company, Amalgamated Dynamics, is now branching out beyond just doing effects work, and they're into producing their own movies that celebrate the non-CGI practical creature effects that they made their names on in the 80s. Starring Bishop himself, Lance Heinrichsen, Harbinger Down is a throwback to the Motley Crew against a monster kind of movies that we all grew up loving loving back in the day. And if you're as much a fan of those kind of movies as I am, you're not going to be disappointed in my conversation with Alec this week. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion. We talk about David Fincher and James Cameron. We find out how the recent prequel to John Carpenter's The Thing led Alec and Tom into creating their own feature film. But before we get into all of that, I had to indulge myself because, you see, Alec worked for Roger Corman back in the early 80s on several of Corman's low-budget sci-fi Firefox. His first feature film work was actually on one of my guilty pleasures, Battle Beyond the Stars. I mean, how could a young me not love a sci-fi version of The Magnificent Seven that starred George Papard and Robert Vaughn and Richard Thomas and John Saxon as the bad guy and Sybil Danning? And it was written by John Sayle. So obviously, I had to start off by asking Alec how he ended up working for Roger Corman. I was 19 when I got the interview. I had met... Well, let's see. My older sister was dating someone who was a carpenter working on the visual effects, the miniature effects. And um, he saw, you know, I, I was working in my mom's garage. That was my little workshop. He saw all these masks and stop motion models and miniature sets and things that I was building and said, hey, I can get you an interview. And, and so I was, I said, oh, that's great. But I was scrambling around trying to put together a proper portfolio because I didn't have anything professional, you know. So I wasn't feeling very good about passing myself off as a professional. So I had recently met someone that had a, that was older than me and had a just dynamite miniatures and paintings and all that. So I said, could I bring a friend? And I figured this person would make me look a little bit better. And that friend was James Cameron. So I and I had met James Cameron through a art teacher that used to teach at the high school that I that I went to. And Jim was living out in uh, Brea back in his uh, you know truck driving, delivering the books to the school district days. And I, I told him about, you know, yeah, I got this interview with Roger Carter. You want to come along? So we went and we interviewed with um, Chuck Kaminsky 
and uh, Robert and Dennis Skotak, and a fellow by the name of Walt Dodge, who was one of the DPs for the miniature effect. And they were out in Tarzana, which, coming from Orange County, seemed like it was at the ends of the earth. And we had this nice interview, but we didn't get a call for like six months. And uh, I kept thinking, uh, I wonder what's going on. So I was working, you know, little dumb jobs in Orange County. And then it turned out, in retrospect, that the Skotak brothers, Robert and Dennis, were, like, lobbying for us. Bring in those guys from Orange County. We need the help. We need the help. You know, they're cheap. They'll they'll work cheap. But there was a little bit of a concern because uh, Cameron was so full of himself. <laughs> he was so self-confident at A25 that people were a little concerned they were split on whether or not they could get along with us. So I, <laughs> in, bringing, in bringing this guy along to make me look better, I did. But I also, you know, he's a controversial guy, Cameron, right? So ultimately, we, we did get the, the job. We worked as a unit together at Corman's, Jim and I. So Jim would kind of like, we, we, we came in as model builders and then there was like this sort of like little like void that happened, you know. Uh, we need a design for Richard Thomas's spaceship. What was it called? Nell? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we needed a design for Nell. So Cameron would like go home and ferociously design, and he came up with that super unique looking spaceship, which of course everyone went, well, that's a slam dunk. It's got boobs, you know. Right, so exactly. <laughs> so then Jim and I would start building the, the spaceship. And then the production designer kind of like, I don't know what the political story was, but basically the job of production designer opened up. So then Jim was like, well, I got to get that job. So he's like, you know, lobbying for that job. So he get, he'd get kicked up the chain and I would follow him up. So I would like start, I would finish up working on the spaceship and I'm trying to figure out these things as I go along because I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of skills. I, but, you know, I would just fake my camera would say, fake your way through it. Luckily, I had guys like Patrick McClung, who was uh, a, a, an experienced model builder. He'd come in and help me and we'd have a you know, great time with that. Basically, everything Cameron would do, I would sort of follow along and kind of assist him on it. And eventually, you know, I was doing, I got a chance to do everything in, uh, it was really the best film school. I was doing, uh, you know, I was loading cameras. I was working with motion control. You know, I was building miniatures. You know, I was doing head casts and building sets, you know, uh, sets of spaceships, you know, back in the day when we would put food cartons, you know, hot glue food containers to go containers on walls and paint them and all that kind of stuff so it was it's really the very best film school i could have gotten and, and i remember when battle was coming to an end i had applied to ucla film school because i think i was still 20 or 21 at the time. and cameron said to me you go to film school and i said yep and he said well, i don't know about that i don't know if that's a good idea and i was like well okay mister we'll see how far you go in life <laughs> So uh, I went off to film school, and then I continued working. I would, like, take a take a quarter off and work for Roger Corman and save money and then go back to film school. And then ultimately I uh, I came around to Cameron's way of thinking that as much as I love film school and I met a lot of great people there, it wasn't anywhere near the uh, kind of experience that I got working for Corman. And I worked on Battle Veil of the Stars and Galaxy of Terror, Android, um, oh man, a couple that I've forgotten the titles of. There was one that was had a big monster in it that Eve Neal worked on. Had a big sort of deadly spawn looking mouth. Um, man, I can't remember. Sometimes I would just go, they'd call me and they'd say, 
hey, uh, you know, we're in a jam. Do you have, can you work a 36-hour shift? And I go, yeah. Right. Run over there and blow off classes for a couple of days, uh, make $100 or whatever I'd make. Anyway, those were, those were my fond experiences. I got to work with, you know, I met Rob Botin there. He was working on humanoids from the deep. I met Gail Ann Erd there. And these were relationships that, you know, and the Skotak brothers, Pat McClock relationships that I, I still have today. One of the great things that I think everybody that worked for Corman in that period came out of it with was you didn't just get experience in one particular area. And looking at your career, it's obvious that not only did you concentrate on makeup effects, but you do makeup effects and you do animatronics and you do CGI work sometimes and you do models and spaceships and whatever the project calls for, you guys can do and that had to have grown from the experience you got working at Corman's. Yeah, I mean, you know, I thought that was normal when I when I started my career, I thought that's just the way it was all over the, the movie biz that you had to be well-rounded, you had to know and who wouldn't want to know all these techniques and be able to apply them because the end goal was always to become a filmmaker and to do the kind of cool movies that I saw other people doing. So it, it was just a natural sort of progression of events. And it wasn't until probably that I, you know, that I started working for Stan Winston that I saw, oh, these, these things are so departmentalized. Like we're not really going to, we're going to, we're just making the monsters. We're not going over and building props and right. you know, working on sets. And that's weird. But in a way that allows you to specialize and really go in deeper to one area and take it to the maximum, you know. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm so glad, you know, with Harbinger, I had full confidence. And I had a, a production designer friend of mine was saying, you're never going to be able to build all these sets. The engine room alone will blow your budget. You cannot possibly. And I said, I think you're wrong because I know the freaking tricks that I learned right. back in my Corman days. And we did it. That's our guest, Alec Gillis, one of the visual effects masterminds behind Aliens and Predator and the writer-director of the new creature feature Harbinger down. Coming up, we're going to find out how Alec felt about going from working with his friend James Cameron on Aliens to working with a relative newcomer on Alien 3. Oh yeah, that newcomer just happened to be some guy named David Fincher. I'm Jim Yelton, and you're listening to Geek Universe. Hey, do you miss the days of Space Invaders and Pac-Man? I don't know how many quarters I dropped into Galaga at my local arcade when I was a kid. Well, Gazapper Games has brought those times back for your Android phone with their latest game, Solar Run. Fast reflexes and strong nerves are needed as you dash about collecting solar cells to power your ship. With the Firebirds constantly on your tail, can you advance through the challenging levels? With lots of nice retro arcade action and over 30 levels to test your reflexes, Solar Rush is a great way to turn your Android phone into a pocket-sized arcade without needing all the tokens. And if you like Solar Rush... Try out other Gazapper games like Galaxy Storm and Invaders from Androidia. All three are available from Google Play, or you can get more information at gazapper.com. That's G-A-Z-Z-A-P-P-E-R, gazapper.com and Google Play. Hey gang, I just wanted to remind you that the Geek Universe is coming live to conventions, colleges, and other great venues around the country this fall. If you like geek comedy, costume contests, games like our Geek Spelling Bee, Trump or Ferengi, the Pop Culture Face-Off, and the Trivia Thunderdome, then go to our website at midnight-entertainment.com and find out all about the Geek Universe slash 30 Minutes of Geek live tour. It's a chance to hang out with your fellow geeks, laugh, show off your nerd IQ, and have a chance to win some great prizes. 
prizes. Get all of the details at midnight-entertainment.com or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash 30 minutes of geek. Hey, we just want to let you know that this week's show is brought to you by Soylent Green. You know, if you're hungry, there's nothing else that satisfies your craving better than Soylent Green. Remember what Charlton Heston said. Soylent Green is made out of people. That's right, Soylent Green. It's 100% green and 100% people. And coming soon, three new flavors. Soylent Red, Soylent Berry Burst Blue, and Diet Soylent with half the calories and half the people. You gotta tell them, Soylent Green is people! Hi, this is Camille Balsamo from the all-practical effects throwback film Harbinger Down, and you are listening to Geek Universe. Welcome back to Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and our guest this week is writer-director Alec Gillis. After years of working as a visual effects artist, Alec is making his feature film directing debut with Harbinger Down. It's a great homage to movies that I loved from the 80s when Alec was creating the monsters in films like Tremors and Leviathan. Before we moved the conversation into that part of Alec's career, I wanted to ask about his earlier friendship with James Cameron, specifically about a story that I had heard years ago. Bill Paxton, who has a long relationship with James Cameron as well, when they met the same way Alec and Cameron worked together, they Bill Paxton was working at Roger Corman's studio in the early 80s, and he was a carpenter, and so he was doing set construction and painting and, and different things for Roger Corman. And Paxton likes to tell the story about how he and Jim Cameron are building a set one day and Cameron's talking about this idea he has for a movie where this like robot from the future comes back in time to kill this woman to keep her from having a baby that would grow up to be like the leader of the resistance in the future. And I, I've always wondered if James Cameron, even back then, had already had the seeds for Terminator. So I asked Alec about it. Yeah, he. Uh, I heard about the Terminator during that time, too. Um, he, I don't think he had a name for it. See, we spent a lot of time on the freeways, driving the freeway from Venice to Brea, and I lived in Santa Ana. So there was a lot of late nights on the freeway, and he told me he saw a car on fire, and he had this image of a robot skeleton climbing out of a fiery car. But he, he did tell me that it wasn't a, or at least what he told me was not a completely fully formed story. We spent a lot of time in the car talking about wouldn't this be cool how can you never see this this is awesome do you remember that old whatever this funky old movie wouldn't it be cool if you did this and made a spin on it and all that stuff so it was very creative time and you can see him on youtube i think his, his old uh, sizzle reel for a project called xenogenesis i see avatar in xenogenesis there were he had it was sort of like a, a very ecologically minded movie and there was a character in it that was like a nine foot tall alien character that itself it was not like a navi but it it had a a, a, the scale of one living side by side living working making jokes right you know with uh with human characters which at the time was nobody was doing that that was a the kind of thing that we were all excited about seeing creatures as characters instead of as effects. He always struck me as somebody that, because I, I tend to work this way too as a writer where I have an idea, but it kind of has to percolate in my head for a while before I can actually put pen to paper, put my fingers on the keyboard and start writing the story. And yeah, it, it right. seems like every time he comes out with a, a new project, the genesis of it was always like 20 years ago. Like he's been thinking about this idea for 15 or 20 years before he actually made the movie. Yeah. You know, we used to, we, we were joking on the set of Aliens when we were standing there and we had a you know, full-scale power loader and a big queen alien there, you know, all the toys you could want. 
and we were laughing with Jim saying, this is you, this is the culmination, the, 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 the realization of a kid grabbing two completely different toys, right? right. Grabbing the dinosaur and uh, bulldozer and smashing them together on, the, on, the, on your living on the carpet, you know, the living room floor. And uh, he thought that was hilarious and very apt. You know, that's what you do. You sit there with these childhood thoughts and you go, how do I recreate what was going on in my brain when I was a kid? Or like in many of our cases, we watch movies and we say, how do we recreate the feeling I got when I watched that movie? Exactly. How much of a difference going from like your Corman years early on to going through film school and then ending up working at Stan Winston studio? It's funny because when I, when I look back on these things, I feel like they all had sort of a logical progression, but it was going and, you know, there's a lot of anxiety involved, you know, what, you know, where's your next job going to come from? Will people take you seriously? Do I have what it takes to, to make it? But by the time I got to Stan's, I was five years in the business already. And I felt like I'm a complete person. I have my toolkits ready to go. And what I got out of Stan's was opportunity rather than any specific, he didn't specifically teach me any techniques, but he gave me an opportunity to use those techniques and also to bend them and take risks. Stan was a believer in risk-taking because it's the only way you can possibly accomplish the kinds of things we're required to accomplish on the schedules with, with the budgets, but, you know, you, you have to take those risks. So I was, I found that very exhilarating because a lot of people that I had worked for in the past were, you know, they were, it was a small potatoes, uh, little companies who were doing little makeup jobs and things. And they just had to play it as safe as they possibly could. If it was something that had not been done before, they didn't want to risk screwing up the job and losing their meager profit margin or whatever. But with stands, it was more, there was more a spirit of inventiveness. And part of that was coming from his association with Cameron, because that's how we all were at Formers. We all had, had to figure out how to do things with nothing and good concepts were rewarded, good ideas were rewarded with the opportunity to execute them. That's not always the way it is in big studio movies. It strikes me that those movies, especially that period in the kind of early mid-80s, was an opportunity for people in your line of work to not just take what had been done as far as effects and makeup and just kind of build on it, but you guys were breaking a lot of ground and doing a lot of new things that nobody had ever seen before. That had to have been thrilling for you to know that you had this open sandbox to play with at times, working with the big budget blockbuster movies you were working on. Well, it was exhilarating, but there was always something else to look at. Like when we started Aliens, we were going like, oh man, we are following up in the footsteps of Ridley Scott and H.R. Giger. My God, do we have this ability? Do we have what it takes? That's exhilarating because you're not sure. You're not sure if the risks you're taking are going to make you look like an idiot or a hero, but you know that if you don't take the risks, you're just, you're certainly not going to to make it. But we always kind of felt like uh, even at Stan's, my time at Stan, we always felt like we were sort of a little bit like, you know, a little more cut rate than Rick Baker. And I I don't say that enough. I'm not trying to diss anybody because I really appreciate all the opportunities at Stan's. But Stan, we, we would say to Stan in a kind of a rebellious fashion. We, you know, Rick Baker had a year to build one character for Harry and the Hendersons, right? And he built nine different heads and this, that, and blah, blah, blah. And why do we keep getting these jobs like Leviathan where we have no time? And then they dump the dive suits on us as well uh, with no difference in time. And we're all just killing ourselves. And Stan said, look, guys, you got to know who you're working for. I am the guy who answers the call. If people come to me and they say, we're in a jam, 
that automatically makes me want to help them. And I'm always going to be production friendly. I'm never going to come back and ask production for exorbitant amounts of time. He said, and he said that this or money. He said, I've done that. He said, back in the days when I did the whiz, I priced myself out of the business. I became known as the guy who, like, everything out of my mouth was a million bucks, million bucks, right? Because he was ballsy like that. But the lesson he learned was that he stopped working and he had to compete with guys in their garage, as well as the Rick Bakers and the Rob Bottin. So we always kind of felt like we were working with a little bit less time and a little bit less money than those guys were and flying by the seat of our pants. In retrospect, I think it was a good thing because all of the work had a sort of, it all had energy to it. And even where it wasn't completely great, we were going for something. And that, that that's an attitude that I've carried, you know, we've carried into our own, into ADI as well. What was it like for you working on the Alien franchise, going from Aliens, which was super colossal, big hit movie, you were working with a director that you had known for a number of years and felt comfortable with, to then going to Alien 3, which by all accounts was a troubled production from the get-go, and you had David Fincher working on his first big studio movie? Well, Aliens was fun, of course, because I was working under the protective umbrella of Stan Henderson. I wasn't a department head. But yeah, you know, I was in with the director and had tons of support from Stan. So I, I had all the fun without the worries of the business aspects and things like that. And then in Alien 3, I think, it was Alien 3 was more of a corporate movie. Aliens, I felt they, they had their hero guy, which was Cameron. It was his vision. He wrote the script. He directed it. He designed the queen, for God's sake, right? With Alien 3, they had a script, or rather two scripts, that they kind of mashed up together to arrive at a script. So it never felt like it was truly inspired. It felt like it was a little bit more of a product, a mechanical process. And, of course, we we met with Vincent Ward uh, in the yeah. beginning, and, and he, he brought some sensibilities to it that they liked. And I'm like, okay, we'll take some of the Vincent Ward ideas, keep them, and we'll get rid of Vincent Ward, and we'll bring in this new kid, Fincher. And I know people have, uh, I don't know if they still do, but the feeling has changed a bit about that movie, because at first I felt like it was just kind of universally disliked, and then over a decade, that started to change, and people started to appreciate it more. I always said to people who would blame Fincher for his shortcomings, I, I said, you got it backwards. If it had not been Fincher, that movie would have been abysmal. But Fincher was able to pull it together. Fincher was a vanguard of the mostly uh, alien. He, he preferred alien to alien. But he was very committed to making the movie that be as good as it could possibly be. But he was also, there was more studio involvement. I saw a lot more studio executives around that movie than I did around Alien. Maybe it was partly because I was a partner head on Alien 3 and I saw more of the inner workings of it, which was educational, but it still felt like people were looking over Fincher's shoulder more than they were looking over Cameron's shoulder. Maybe that's just a function of the fact that Cameron had a hit movie, Terminator, before he went to do Aliens, and Fincher was a first-time director. But which one was a great experience, and I have very fond memories. They were only five years apart, but very different, two, two very different experiences. You're listening to Geek Universe with this week's guest, writer-director Alec Gillis. You can find information about Alec's new movie, Harbinger Down, at its website, which is harbingerdown.com. 
Stay tuned, we have more with Alec, including some of the best advice for aspiring filmmakers that we've ever shared on the show. I'm Jim Yelton, and this is Geek Universe. PopFunko.com is the best place on the web to shop for those awesome Funko Pop vinyl figures. Specializing in rare and hard-to-find figures, PopFunko.com carries limited editions, metallics, glow-in-the-darks, autographed, chase, and retired pops. All your favorite characters from The Walking Dead, Ghostbusters, Game of Thrones, The Big Lebowski, and many, many more can be found here too. They even have collector sets and a bargain bin featuring pop figures for $10 or less. It's my first stop when looking for Funko figures, and now it can be yours too. That's popfunko.com. You are listening to Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Have a comment about the show? Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30 minutes of geek. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for this week's Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton. Let's get back to our conversation with writer-director Alec Gillis. His new film, Harbinger Down, was conceived as a love letter to the practical effects films that Alec and his partner Tom Woodruff Jr. worked on throughout their careers, including Aliens, Tremors, and Predator. Since Alec's work on some of the seminal creature features of my teenage years had inspired me, I kind of wondered what films inspired Alec while he was growing up. The first Planet of the Apes blew my mind. All of Ray Harryhausen's work with stop motion was that that set my life's course. But there are also other lots of other things that I saw, you know, growing up at that time in the in the sixties and seventies, watching movies that were being rerun on T V, you know, old movies like uh, I keep mentioning Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. People say, What's what movie scared you as a kid? And I'm like, Well, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte scared the crap out of me with Betty Davis old movies uh, like Black Friday and uh, with Boris Karloff and, you know, things that my dad would allow me to watch that um, that were totally inappropriate for my age, but mind-bending. And, but, of course, at the time, it wasn't super gory or anything like that. You know, anybody that's interested in this particular genre, we, we all had parents that allowed us to watch things that were probably not particularly appropriate for us at that yeah, particular yeah. age. <laughs> I always say it's a, it's a bad uncle syndrome. There was always some uncle that babysat you or something. My dad was my bad uncle. My, my parents got divorced when I was 11, and they both were feeling so guilty. It was Their divorce was the greatest thing for my career because I, I got a movie camera that had a stop-motion setting and slow motion on it because they felt guilty. My dad would take me to see movies. like There was some, I don't know who directed it, it was an Italian movie, I think, called Torso. But we would go to the Marine Corps base and for like 25 cents we'd watch a triple feature. So we'd spend like seven hours watching ultra-violent, gory movies. And, uh, and he'd say, don't tell your mother. He'd be he's like, maybe this isn't a good idea, but don't tell your mother. Anyway, yeah, it's, that, it's the inappropriate aspect of it. That, and, and back in the day, what was inappropriate, you know, we would just consider now a PG-13 charming. Exactly. Role, you know. <laughs> When you and your partner, Tom Woodruff, decide that you're going to start doing stuff on your own, you open your own company, and, and you guys start doing all this amazing work yourselves, was the reboot slash prequel of The Thing kind of the turning point for you guys? Because I know you did a lot of work on that that was practical effects, just like Rob Bottin did in the 82 John Carpenter version. Did they replace 100% of it with CGI? Was there any practical effects left? No, they didn't replace 100%. I mean, they, they, there is a creature, the ice block alien, that there's a scene where it's under the building and it shoots out a tentacle. And there are aspects in that that are digital, but largely that 
creature is sort of what I would say is what the balance of the movie was supposed to have been, that, you know, you'd have right. primarily a practical thing, but if there was transformative things, bubbling flesh or things just really doing some massive shape-shifting, you'd go into digital. Or we'd have digital creatures that were an animatronic torso that digital legs would be added to, for instance. And so these were the exciting things to us because we were going to, within a frame, be combining practical and digital, but the talk was it would still be 80% practical and 20% digital. And of course, that's what we were saying, that's what we were all saying to the press as we were making the movie. And it wasn't until post-production when that digital creep, and I'm not referring to a person, it's just a, creep, <laughs> a, digital, a digital expansion starts happening, you know. And it, with, it wasn't really so much like the movie was a last straw because this was de rigueur for for practical effects at this point. I mean, right. Rick Baker's transformation and the Wolfman had been replaced by digital work. Uh, you know, his some of his work from the Men in Black movies got replaced. We had had a couple of things uh, replaced. You know, so it just it just happens, you know, and we were all like, oh God, I guess I guess it's, you know, we are the wagon wheel makers of yesteryear. It's just, you know, we're not the new thing anymore. Uh, I guess maybe this is, we, it wasn't so much outrage and anger when the thing happened because, you know, first of all, we really like all the people who worked on the movie, all the people we worked with. You know, Matthias, I think he's a really solid director. We had great relationships with the people at Image Engine who, they do spectacular digital work, right? Exactly. But ask even the most talented people to step in at the last minute and, uh, you know, change everything over to digital. Well, they're not happy either because that means they got to spend a lot of time. They're never going to get enough time to refine it to the degree that they want. And the result is they don't get to spend time with their family. And I, I used to joke about, like, the Pixar movies that show the production babies, all the babies born during the production. We should right. also have one that says production divorces <laughs> and list the couples that split up because these damn movies don't have enough schedule and everybody's struggling with a, with a shrinking, with a release date that you're backing into. To get to the point, we were sad about it, but it was more sort of like, well, we might just be a, a thing of the past. And it wasn't until we had these, like, people starting to say, hey, what happened on the thing? You guys must have screwed up. Your work must have looked bad. And we were like, well, you know what? How about we just put it up? The movie comes and goes. It makes its money. The money is going to whatever it's going to do theatrically. It did. We put up a video. So here you go. You be the judge. Whatever. We're proud of the work, but maybe we're too old-fashioned. Maybe we don't see. And then the response was so overwhelming. And you saw this uh, range of reactions from sadness to anger to disbelief and we realized there are a lot of people out there who care about practical effects not not and we're not fooling ourselves to saying there's exclusively tom and alec fans right but they love the work of stan winston rick baker ray harryhausen they love miniature work you know they love it when there's miniatures in a christopher nolan movie and all because it enhances the trompe the suspension of disbelief and if you're if you rely on only one technique, you are by nature limiting the effect because the effect becomes apparent. So I say I am against the suppression of techniques, tools that a filmmaker should have at his or her disposal. None of them should be off limits, only by time, budget, whatever. And by saying that, I would say, therefore, I cannot be anti-digital. I want filmmakers to have digital tools because they are 
incredible. But I also want them to have access to old school practical because they too are incredible. So that was what the kind of genesis of Harbinger Down was. Funding something like this has become a lot different in this day and age because you went the Kickstarter route to fund part of the production. Was that also kind of a a gauge of interest for this sort of thing? Did you say to yourselves before you started the Kickstarter campaign that this is going to tell us if there's really a definite interest in it, if people are willing to throw down their hard-earned money? To support something yeah, like this? exactly. It's like you know, there are a number of a number of things working, a number of things lined up. For me, I thought, okay, people are watching our, our you know, we get a million views pretty quickly on, on our on our video, the the thing video, and then also we put our work from I Am Legend, Ridley Scott's version, the Green Goblin appliance that we did, and these things we became the the poster boys for cool work you never saw, right? Right. But maybe that's the extent of it. Maybe people just want to complain about it and feel sad because there's there's no shortage of people going to see Marvel movies or, or you know, any big digital movies. There's no – people still are still going to them. So it's not like they're, you know, they're going to boycott and shut that down. And what I thought was this is a way for us to democratize this and say, okay, folks, here is your chance to push back against a system that is not listening to you, is not catering to your needs. This is a chance for you to take into your own hands, to some degree, how movies are made. And if you're with us on it, if, if you like the sound of this idea, and you like what our mission statement is, then vote us on the island. Otherwise, vote us off, and we'll shut up, and we'll just go back to business as usual and withering on the vine and whatever. So for us, it was a it was a resounding thumbs up with, I think we were the number one, I think we still are the highest funded sci-fi project on Kickstarter history. And it, I think it shows something. It, it doesn't necessarily show the complete extent of fandom across the world, because I think a lot of people came to a light and said, you know, we, we didn't know about this until it was too late. So hopefully they have a chance to see the movie, rent the movie. That's another way to vote, is to watch the movie. Alec Gillis is our guest on this week's edition of the Geek Universe. I'm your host, Jim Yelton, and you've heard us talking about upcoming dates for the live Geek Universe extravaganzas, which could be coming to a venue near you this fall. For more information, check out our website at midnight-entertainment.com. Hey gang, this week's show is sponsored by the Now Write Writing Guide series from Tarcher Penguin. Now Write Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror is the latest book in the popular Now Write series, and it offers a full toolbox of advice and exercises for speculative fiction writers from some of the most well-known names in the genre. Are you hoping to craft an engaging alternate reality or flesh out an enthralling fantasy quest, or even dream up a blood-curdling plot twist? Well, you can learn secrets from authors such as Harlan Ellison, Piers Anthony, Jack Ketchum, Ramsey Campbell, John Skip, Joe R. Lansdale, David Brin, Vonda McIntyre. I mean, the list goes on and on. They provide tips, tricks, and suggestions to help take your writing to the next level. Whether you're a beginner or a published professional, now write science fiction, fantasy, and horror is a must-have for every genre writer's bookshelf. You know, I always tell everybody when I do a workshop or I teach one of my screenwriting classes that when I started, there was like two books that gave instruction on how to do this sort of thing. And you kind of, it was like being a babe in the woods. Like you just kind of had to find your way. And this is a really good way to get some exercises and some hints and tips on how to 
jumpstart your writing. So make sure to check it out. It's Now Write, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. It's available in most Barnes & Noble stores on Amazon.com and directly from their website at nowwrite.net. This episode of the show is sponsored in part by Ace Designs Media. With hundreds of web design projects under their belt and over 200 happy customers, the Ace Designs media team knows how to build beautiful, interactive websites, and they can help with yours too. Whether your business needs a site that will simply wow your customers, or you need to add advanced features like e-commerce or blogs, their affordable prices mean that there is no longer any reason to say no to a high-quality, engaging website. So say yes and take the first step towards a new dynamic web presence for your business and visit the Ace website at Ace designsmedia.com. That's acedesignsmedia.com. This is David Huntsberger from Sci-Fi's Reactor, and you're listening to Geek Universe with Jim Yeltsin. We're glad to have you join us for another exciting episode of Geek Universe. I'm Jim Yelton, and we've had the pleasure of chatting with visual effects guru Alec Gillis this week. Shortly before Alec and I had talked, I had the chance to see his new film Harbinger Down, and for those of you who are expecting some sort of cheap-looking indie Kickstarter project, you're going to miss out on a movie that shows how a limited budget doesn't have to have a limit to the production values that you put on the screen. Alec and his team have created a well-shot film with some very good performances from a cast of little-known actors along with genre icon Lance Heinrichson. This movie looks like it cost about a hundred times its actual budget and is well worth the 90 minutes of your time to watch it. It's obviously a tip of the cap to Aliens and The Thing, and Alec freely acknowledges that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you bring to it um, your your kind of cumulative sensibilities formed by all the movies you've seen. In this case, it's been very interesting. The, re- the reviews, the reactions are very interesting. And in some reviews are completely polar opposite from others because with some people, it really, what we were trying to do really resonate. With other people, they say it's just a ripoff. It's, it's just a rehash of hackneyed tropes. And I'm not buying this at all. You can say all you want about love letters to the 80s. All you've done is rip off the thing, right? They don't see beyond that, and I don't expect to win them over, although as we talked about with time, I think sometimes opinions change. For me, luckily I had the luxury, having been funded by by Kickstarter and then Dark Dunes, I had the luxury of being able to say, what do I want to do with this? I don't have to second guess an audience. I think that in this case, I am attuned, I'm in sync and lockstep with the people who pledged on Kickstarter because they know what this is. I got up there and I said, it's going to be an homage to the thing, an alien, practical effects, throwback, all that stuff, right? If I now divert from that and try to reinvent the kind of mythos that John Carpenter set up or the story structure that, you know, Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon set up, then I'm kind of turning it into my own thing. And that's not what this is about. It's not about me expressing my ultimate creativity as a filmmaker. It's me saying, hey, we're all together on this, and I am going to give you what you've been asking for. That's what it is. Now, there's a chance, obviously, that I could fail at that. There's a chance that it will not connect with a certain portion of the audience because they weren't part of this whole process with Kickstarter from back in the day. What do they care? They just want to see the next new most awesome thing. And that's not what this is. I, I, one of the one of the analogies I give is this is not filet mignon. This is meatloaf. This is comfort food, cinematic comfort food. It's what you it's what you get. You finally go home and you say, Mom, make me that meatloaf. 
I'm the guy that worked on these 80s movies that you can look to and say, can you just serve me up some of that stuff that I haven't been seeing in a long time? I go, yeah, sure. Right. I'll give you that, honey. We'll put some extra monster gravy on it. You know, that, that's, that's what I was doing. Now, having said that, I did try within the, the structure. I'm glad you brought up Aliens because the movie is sort of tonally a little bit more like Aliens, I think, than it is the thing or, or Alien, even though the structure of it is Alien and the creature is the thing the and the setting is more thing like um i think the ensemble thing that i was going for was more like aliens which i think is sort of a the ultimate in the 80s ensemble you know joking quipping macho guys insulting each other but under all of it you feel like there's a camaraderie oh exactly people actually like each other and for every archetype you know, like the snotty professor, I tried to give some aspect that played against that type. You know, like I think if when Matt Winston's character is becoming egotistical and possessive of the credit for the find, there's actually a moment where you feel sorry for him, where he has been duped when they play a joke on him and distract him and get him talking about, you know, he's being a blowhard, he's being a jerk, but you should feel a little sorry for the guy, right? The same thing with uh, with Lance's part. You know, I know Lance to be a very mentoring and loving person. Mostly what you see of him in movies is gruff, powerful. You know, if he's playing a bad guy, he plays a badass bad guy, right? Right. So I wanted to show him as an authority figure with a certain power and intensity, but also as a loving grandfatherly type. So I think that's him. To me, that is him. However, if you're watching the movie and you're already got your arms crossed and you think it's a ripoff, then probably you think these are all just one-dimensional characters because they are archetypes, no doubt about that. They are 80s archetypes. And then what I tried to do with Sadie um, was to show a person who, a young person who is sort of timid, uh, is encouraged to stick her neck out, and she does so, and in the process opens a Pandora's box, which she cannot successfully get back into the box. Um, So I think actually if, if there was going to be a sequel to this, I think, Sadie's character would be a lot more interesting in the sequel in the way that I think the Ripley character became more interesting in Aliens than she was in Alien. The thing that I appreciated about it, both, you know, we were talking earlier about how it, it's not very hard for you as an effects person to watch an effects heavy movie because you have an appreciation for the, the artistry and the work that went into it. As a writer, I love watching movies where I get a deeper appreciation for what the writer and the director are trying to get story-wise. And you really do a great job of presenting those archetype characters and then doing a swerve at some point. You know, they're not the strict one-dimensional character that we've seen in every other movie like this. And you really do a great job of layering the characters. And I know when I was watching it, I actually looked at the counter half an hour into the movie, I'm thinking to myself, we haven't really seen a creature yet. And, you know, this was a movie that part of the selling point is it's a practical effects movie with this creature in it. And I haven't seen any inkling of a creature. I know it's coming. I I know it's going to be there for the the last two thirds of the movie, but I haven't seen it yet. This has all been about character. And I really appreciated that as a writer because I like when people – take audience expectations for what this movie is going to be or what the story is going to be, and then kind of tilt it 45 degrees and say, you know, it's, well, these it, characters yeah, aren't exactly it, what you thought they were. And isn't it interesting that by today's 
standards, we think of that as, as you say, as, a, as an exception or as a tilted. It, that slow burn is no longer appropriate in uh, most studio movies. But that is exactly what was done commonly in the 80s. And for me, not only do I like it uh, as an audience member and you know, uh, as as a writer, because you get to know these characters, you get to see something about the people, you get to start having feelings for the people before you start killing them, so that when you kill them, there's a, a possibility of an emotional connection there. And if you just start flying into creature stuff and flying into deaths and flying without really getting to know anybody, then I, I think it's a little bit of a lesser experience. But the other aspect of this that is very useful, and this is why I think 80s movies were perfect because for their budget levels because you didn't have enough money and resources to show a vast expansive universe and and all its glory so what do you do if you don't have a lot of money you have a running time you have to fulfill you better do some character development you better spend your time wisely if your your goal i think it was one of billy wilder's rules i think one of the rules was don't be boring or rather be entertaining right so there's different ways to be entertaining, and if you, it, it, what a wonderful blessing to have no money, because then you're forced to have your characters be entertaining, and you're forced to have performances. You must have performances that are good enough to carry the those that 30 minutes before the creature stuff starts happening. So I'm glad you spotted that, because that's what I was going for. Well, we've come to the end of another exciting edition of Geek Universe. Thanks to our guest, Alec Gillis, for being a part of the show this week. Make sure to check out his new film, Harbinger Down, at his website for the movie. It's harbingerdown.com, or you can find it on DVD and on demand right now. Don't forget to become a fan of Geek Universe and our 30 Minutes of Geek podcast on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com slash 30 Minutes of Geek. And as always, we have more interview than we can fit into one episode of the show. This week was no exception. You can find out what Alex says about working on the movie Tremors, how he feels about watching other effects-heavy movies, and why producer Gail Ann Hurd is so awesome. Plus, interviews with the stars of Harbinger Down, Camille Balsamo, and read columns in our Geek Leftovers on the 30 Minutes of Geek podcast. You can find our complete archive along with peeks at my books, The Swindlers of Doom, as well as the upcoming Extraordinary at our website, midnight-entertainment.com. That's it for this week's Geek Universe. For Rachel, our robotic announcer, I'm Jim Yelton, reminding you, don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. You've been listening to another exciting episode of Geek Universe with Jim Yelton. Find out more about the Geek Universe including how to buy Jim's book, the exciting sci-fi adventure The Swindlers of Doom, along with our other geek merchandise, information about our live shows, our full archive of previous episodes, our bonus features podcast, blogs, and more at midnight-entertainment.com. You can also find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash 30 minutes of geek, or on Twitter using the Twitter handle at 30 minutes of geek. Geek Universe with Jim Yelton is a production of Midnight Entertainment LLC and is a proud part of the GLN Radio Network. This episode is copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Well, kids, that's all you get. That's it. <laughs>